1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose... That godliness is a means of gain. But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Skip down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Instruct those who are rich. So when the Bible commands that we instruct, any pastor worth his pulpit must do that. Must instruct. I must take that word seriously, and so I do. But let me ask you one more time, what is the goal of our instruction? All right. 1 Timothy 1.5, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's why we teach. That's why we instruct. That's the point of the whole thing. Don't ever forget that. The goal of our instruction is love. So, so let's talk turkey this morning. Or bacon. Bank rolls, Benjamins, bills, Bob, bones, brass, bread, bucks, buckaroos, C notes, cabbage, cake, cash, cash, cashola, kaching, change, cheddar, cheese, chump change, clams, coin, quan, cold cash, cream credits, dead presidents, <laughs> dinero, dividends, dosh, doubloons, dough, dub, ducats, fiat, fibers, fleece, frog skin, I'm going through the whole alphabet, G's, grand, gravy, green, greenbacks, guap, jacks, jacksons, k's, quiche, lettuce, lincolns, long greens, lolly, loot, lucre, mammon, Monet, moolah, nickels, paper, pesos, plastic, quid, rhinos, rolls, sawbucks, scratch, skrilla, simoleons, shekels, slugs, smackers, smackaroos, spondulics, squid, stack, sugar, tender, tuppence, two-bit, wad, wonga, yard, and yappers. <laughs> all terms for the almighty buck. All synonyms for money. Steve Martin once wrote, or once actually said, that great theologian, I love money. I love everything about money. I have a lot of money, so I bought some pretty good stuff. He said, I got me a $300 pair of socks. Bought a fur sink. Got an electric dog polisher. That was a good one. Gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater. Of course, I bought some dumb stuff, too. 
You know, the Bible has much to say about money and wealth. You could do entire series and seminars, and people do, on how to handle your money, how you're supposed to use your money. But Jesus, I think, said it best in Matthew 6.24 when he said, No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't do it. And every generation, someone comes along who thinks they're the exception to that rule. You cannot serve God and wealth. We know that the goal of our instruction is love, but why do we search the Scriptures for it? I remind you because John 5.39 says you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And I point that out because we would be remiss if we studied these verses for instruction on money and on wealth and did not ultimately arrive at Jesus. And it's really the only problem that I have with all the financial Christian financial seminars out there is that they are all about the managing of your money. In a godly way, I understand that, but they don't come to the final conclusion, which is Jesus. And the handling of our money, and how it draws us to a closer, deeper relationship with Him more than any other thing. And that really has to be the point. Truly, any instruction is a testimony of Jesus Christ, must bring us back to the person of Jesus, who said, Mark 14, 7, you always have the poor with you whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. So even in talking money management, the end goal is to understand Jesus and to draw near to Him. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that thought in a few minutes. But our text this morning, related to money and wealth and finances and riches, our text is directed really at two people. Let's see if you fit into one of these two categories. In verse 17, it's those who are already rich. Those who are already rich. So if you are already rich or you fall into that category, the instruction is for you today. Secondly, it's for those who want to get rich. Verse 9. Note that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. And then verse 17, those who are rich. Those are the two categories. And pretty much that covers all of us. You might say, well, I don't have much and I'm very happy to be... Yeah, right. (laughs) Whether you're in the money or strapped for cash, this applies, brothers and sisters, to you and to me. In more ways than we may realize. Why is Paul suddenly addressing this at the end of this first pastoral letter? In writing to Timothy, clearly it's an issue there at Ephesus. Looking back again at verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, and he points out those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, note that, circle that, godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, again, out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, just those descriptive words there sound like social media today. Or the news. 
envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction. I mean, that, we see that going on all around us, don't we? And it is not of the Lord. That is not Jesus. We need to realize that. That ranting on social media, belittling people, Calling people out like we see going on all around us. I understand it is the way of the culture right now. It is not the way of the Lord. And may we as people of Jesus Christ reject that. Because it belongs to those who have depraved minds, he said, and deprived of the truth. Remember those deceitful spirits and disingenuous liars we talked about last week? That Paul looked at and and warned against in chapter 4? Same people. Same attitude, same mentality, and here we see that a large part of their heretical motivation is greed. That they see godliness as a means of gain. A means of getting something. I'm sure that none of us in here ever see godliness as a means of gain. On the surface you might say, well of course not, I'm not here to make a an extra dollar. I'm not here because I think this is going to, you know, bring more money into my into my pocket. Yeah, but do you ever think of godliness as a means of self-gain? I mean, come on, I do. I have. If I'm more godly, what does that do for my reputation? If I'm more godly, how do I look to my brothers and sisters? Godliness, pursuing righteousness, especially in the church setting, if we see godliness as a means of gain by itself, we will miss the point. And these heretics saw it that way. Skip down to verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. These are the same people about whom Paul writes in chapter 4 verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says in later times some will fall away from the faith. And now he's giving a reason for the falling away. And that is the desire to make more. The desire for money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil he says. I have watched this happen too many times for it to be dismissed. Too many times over the years. Someone who's faithfully following Jesus, loves Jesus, at the church every time the doors are open, focused on the Lord, praising with all their heart, and then a business opportunity enters their life. And bit by bit, by bit, it begins to contain and control them. And I, I, could, I could name names. I won't. But I've seen it happen again and again. This, this lure, this, this desire, we wouldn't think of it as a desire for wealth, but this desire to just be a little better off than I am right now. It's among the most dangerous hungers of the human heart. It is the one that will take you away from Jesus faster than almost any other. The first time that wealth or riches is even mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis. Very early on, and it's about Abram, who was Genesis 13. In fact, turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 13. 
Abram in Genesis 13 too was very rich. Did you know that? This wandering man, this called of God, was a very wealthy man. He was rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Genesis 13, verse 2. Genesis 13, verse 5 tells us something else. It says, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So uncle and nephew are well off. Wealthy boys. And the first mention of wealth in the Bible details a business crisis. Look at verse 6. The land which, well, it could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land along with the flashlight and the (laughs) megabyte. Verse 8 says, So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my, my, my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. And if to the right, then I will go to the left. So good heart. Just because you have wealth, because you have riches, doesn't mean you're inherently a sinner. You can be good-hearted. And I have seen wealthy, well-off people be some of the most generous, giving, good-hearted people that I know. So it's not a matter of having money that is the problem. It's what money does to the heart. And it did not appear to affect Abram so much. Lot, however, lifted up his eyes, verse 10, and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. And so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Oh, that land, it looks so good. If you want to take a good view of that land today, come with us on our tour to Israel. Ride the trolley up to the top of Masada. Stand on that desert peak and look down at the valley that's described here. It is a complete desolation. It's the valley of the Dead Sea. That entire region... Partially called the Negev, but that region of Israel from there and and heading to the south is is desolate. And it wasn't. I mean, did you hear the description? Lot saw it and said, that is the rich land. That's where wealth can increase. That's where it's all good. And that's where he headed. And found all that he had destroyed. The land was good, Lot had eyes for it, and he ended up pierced with many griefs. He would, at the end of this story, lose his home, his friends, his business associates, his flocks, his herds, his his land holdings, his wife. He would lose it all because of the lure of what appeared to be good. 
That has been the lure of humanity since the very beginning. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and listen. Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So be careful, especially if you are in the strapped for cash position. Don't long for it. Don't desire it. The best thing you can do if you're tight money-wise, is long for Jesus. In fact, it was Jesus who said, Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So the best thing you can do if you're tight is seek Jesus. Seek the kingdom. Pursue righteousness. But Rick, what does that have to do with making money? i got to make money. You need to follow Jesus. Because you're not going to find what you're looking for in financial dealings. Now note this in verse 10, he says, well, it's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. It's not, by the way, it's not the root of evil, it's a root. So it's not the only one, it's just a a pretty definite one. And it's not all evil, as if just kind of generic evil out there. No, it's a root of all sorts of evil. Because you can track so many different evil and wicked things in our world, you can track directly back to the love of money. To the desire for gain, for more wealth. Literally translated, verse 10 should read, For a root of all kinds of evil is the love of money. Now, Paul is probably quoting a known proverb here. There were many Proverbs in the day that were spoken, very similar to this. Diogenes, he wrote, the love of money is the mother city of all evils. (laughs) And that's good. And it's not just a non-believer issue, it is a church problem. If you'll listen to this, this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. The desire for riches and wealth and money, or feeling like you have it, that was the Laodicean lethargy. Revelation 3.17 reads, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of, or have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and you're, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And then Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline because the goal of our instruction is love. You see, those who want to get rich, over and over, the Bible warns through teaching and example that the pursuit of such things is a plunge into ruin. It is an absolutely sure way to pierce yourself with many griefs. Now, I could go on and on about this, but as I studied through this and read through it, I thought that is such an obvious statement. It's so absolutely clear, so let's not beat a dead horse with it. If you want to get rich and you're not, be careful, because it will be a source of grief for you. Rather than desiring wealth, desire Jesus. Desire righteousness. Oh, that's fine for you, Rick. You seem to be doing just fine. Well, I'm wearing jeans. I'll tell you why I struggle with teaching this. Because as a pastor, I am truly well taken care of. My family is. I can't even tell you how good this fellowship has been to us in taking care of our needs and looking after us. 
I, more than I ever expected. How much, Rick? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but I don't find myself falling into the category of those who want to get rich. I find myself in the category of those who are. And I kind of think that most of us here are in that place. Well, I'm not. Okay, listen. What about those who are already rich? Clearly for those who want to get rich, man, the common is replace that desire with the desire for Jesus. Focus on Him. Let righteousness and the kingdom be your focus. Otherwise you will find yourself snared. But those who are already rich, listen. According to statistics from the World Bank, the typical person in the bottom 5% of American income distribution is still wealthier than 70% of the world's inhabitants. Let me say that again. Be really clear. Those who are in the lower, the bottom 5% of American income distribution are still wealthier than 70% of the world's inhabitants. And you know what else? That lower 5% of income in America is also as rich as the top 5% in India. So perhaps we need to rethink how truly wealthy we are. And think about a couple of the wealthiest men who ever lived, David and Solomon. Do you realize that you have more access to filling desires than either of them had? I mean, in the world in which we live, at our fingertips in America, we are absolutely filthy rich in this country. The richest country ever on the face of the earth in all history. That describes all of us. Now, if you're in that, if you're in that bottom 5% of income distribution and you're struggling financially, I understand that. But get perspective that you are among the wealthiest people on the face of the earth. So from a God perspective looking down, you already have so much more than you think you do. Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but again on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. People love to point out that it's not money, it's the love of money that's the real problem. And truly it is. However, the Hebrew Scriptures throughout warn that merely having wealth carries with it its own heavy burdens of temptation. Turn back to the Psalms. Psalm Psalm 49. Out in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 49. In this Psalm of the Sons of Korah, Psalm 49 verse 10, they write, For he sees that even wise men die, The stupid and senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. It is a lie of every generation that somehow by amassing my, my wealth, my portfolio, 
that I'm going to be okay. No, you're going to die. We talked about that last week. And you cannot take that with you. You can amass all amounts of wealth, and yet disease will not avoid you. Hardship will not skip by your door, and death will not say, oh, he's so well off, we really can't touch him. They continue and say down in verse 16 of Psalm 49, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Note that. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, as though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they will never see the light. He's not talking about those who will be resurrected to see God, to live with Jesus. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, again, is like the beasts that perish. Paul tells Timothy to instruct the rich not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. A couple of Psalms over in Psalm 52. Turn there real quickly. Psalm 52, just one verse out of this, verse 7. David says, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Proverbs 18 verse 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. Proverbs 23 verse 4, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies the heavens. In other words, it is fleeting. It will fly away. And the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, at a time when many in Israel were trusting in their wealth and the riches of the temple to save them, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The greatest wealth you can ever imagine comes solely of knowing Jesus Christ and of being in a relationship with God. Solomon understood this. Let's consider this even a little further here. Uh, Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The old preacher understood well the piercing grief of wealth. And he describes it. He saw the cash... The stash and the crash, all three. Watch this. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. That is, with the increase of stuff comes the increase of consumption. Your stuff will just get eaten faster. So, what is the advantage to their owners except to look on. So here's the cash. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. (laughs) That's really sage advice. 
I'll tell you what, when I was a kid, I slept beautifully. Because I never worried about where the next meal was going to come from, or could I afford this, or pay that, or cover that. I didn't even think about it. I was taken care of. But as an adult, and I'm just being brutally honest, the things that have waked me up at night have often been related to money. How are we going to pay for this? How can we afford that? And that's the cash. What about the stash? Verse 13, There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. And as he came naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. Here's the crash. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind throughout his life? He also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Sounds like the ramblings of a bitter old rich man. Verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. Eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Note that. If you make it all about what you have now and your experience in this life and the wealth now, that's it. That is your reward. Enjoy it now because that's the only reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive His reward and rejoice in His labor. This is the gift of God. Note this, verse 20. For He will not often consider the years of His life because God keeps Him occupied with the gladness of His heart. What does that mean? Listen, Solomon, the the preacher here, he's not saying that God is underhanded in distracting people from considering life. What he's saying here is that God enables all people, rich believers, rich non-believers, he enables all people to enjoy life. Have you seen a non-believer just happy in their life with all they have and their stuff and and their riches? See, I have. I think we all have. Have you ever wondered about that? I am up every Sunday morning. I show up Wednesday nights. I study my Bible. I'm struggling. And yet that guy has all kinds of wealth. How is that fair, Lord? And I believe the Lord would tell you, would tell me, I'm giving them so much because this is all they'll ever have. This is it. God in His grace blesses people. And sometimes He will go overboard and bless someone for whom this life is it. I'll tell you what, I would rather be poor all my days in this world and be rich with Jesus in heaven. But that's the other option. And so God is gracious. He is good. People don't even realize this. Those who say, where's your God when this happens? Or those who rail against God and yet have so much, don't even realize what they have is a gift of grace. From a loving God who says, you don't know me, you have rejected me, I'm going to provide for you anyway. And He does. God knows for those who reject Him, this is the best it will ever be. Their best life now. 
Here's the underlying question of Solomon. And I believe of the Hebrew Scriptures when it comes to wealth. What's the reward you're looking for? What do you want? Do you want it now? Or do you want it then? Doesn't mean that you won't be blessed now. But it also doesn't mean that you will be blessed now. What do you want for your reward? Do you want it now or later? Isaiah 62.11 Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense is before Him. Isaiah prophesied centuries, seven centuries before Jesus that He's coming and He's going to bring His reward with Him. And of course, what did Jesus say in Revelation 22.12? Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So then, what are the well-off to do with all this? Back in 1 Timothy. Verse 18. Paul says to Timothy, instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul is clearly speaking by the Spirit of Jesus Christ here because it was Jesus who said in Matthew 6.19 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in their steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are you wealthy? Or even want to be wealthy? Be rich in love. Are you blessed or even want to be blessed? Be a blessing to others. And in so doing, as we pour out all that is poured into us, as we pour it out, we store up in heaven. The reward there becomes greater. Not the reward here. There is no promise in Scripture, by the way, that if you pour out blessing on others, that you will be poured out upon constantly. Except, except that... 2 Corinthians 9.8 tells us God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That's not quid pro quo. It just means God's going to take care of you. He will provide. He'll make sure you have every single thing that you need. Such that you can give to those who don't. Paul is is teaching truth. Over and against those deceivers who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. And they're completely missing it. They're completely missing it. Look back at verse 6 now. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Job said it well. Job one twenty one. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So here's a good thing to remember. You get to take everything out that you brought in. 
In the moment of your birth, whatever you had on hand, that's what you get to take with you. It's a hiker's idea. You know, if you're going to pack it in, pack it out. So all that you had in your person on the day of your birth, that's yours to take into eternity. (laughs) Nothing in between is going. (laughs) Doesn't that make silly how hard we chase down wealth? I went to college. Why? So I could get a better job. Why? So I could make more money. Why? So I could lose it all when I die? It it just, it doesn't make sense. And yet we get so focused. Man, it's the American dream. Right? He says if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You know what that is? Well, you know what food is. Covering, we're not talking about a house. We're talking about clothing. It's also translated raiment or or the shirt on your back. If you can eat. Did you have breakfast this morning? Anyone not have breakfast? Uh, Now, some of you may have chosen not to have breakfast, whatever diet you're on. (laughs) Anyone not able to have breakfast because there wasn't anything in the fridge? Even ketchup. (laughs) Anyone not (laughs) dressed this morning? Thank you for coming dressed. Clothing and the shirt on your back. If you eat today, if you are clothed today, with these we shall be, and here's the key word of the whole thing, content. I was studying through all these things. You know, okay, so is this just like hammering on all of us for how well off we are? Is it, is it just making us feel certain things about money or the acquisition of wealth? What's the deal here, Lord? What do you want instructed here? And I really didn't know. Through most of Thursday, as I kept coming back to this, reading it, thinking about it, and coming back to it again, I didn't know. I guess we'll just instruct them not to be rich. No, that's not the point. So what's the point, Lord? I kept asking, what is the point, Lord? And He brought it right back to contentment. Let me ask you this morning, and don't go easy on yourself with this question. Are you content... If nothing in your life changes until Jesus comes or you die, are you content? If you can answer yes, praise the Lord. If you can't answer yes right now, then listen. Listen. The word content is arkeo in the Greek. And it just means satisfied. Are you satisfied today? Can you say in the Lord Jesus, I'm satisfied. This is enough. That's also what arkeo means. It means enough. And see, the question is, well, how much is enough? Seneca said, it is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. Poverty is not determined by how much or how little you have. It's determined by how much more you want. You could be a billionaire and be in poverty because you want more. Because you crave for more. I like this one. George Bernard Shaw said, if all the economists were laid end to end, they'd never reach a conclusion. (laughs) Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. 
I know also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. All things through Christ. I told you, we'd miss the point if we didn't come back to Jesus. And so we're back to Jesus. Because He is the key to contentment. For all our understanding of biblical things and what the Bible talks about, riches and wealth and and amassing great wealth and not having anything and, and our attitudes and our hearts regarding all these things, Jesus Christ is the secret of contentment. Whether you have much or have little. So the first thing to do if this morning... The question of your contentment, if you cannot say, I'm content, then the absolute first thing you need to look at is your relationship with Jesus. Because if you are discontent, that's where the problem is. That's where there's a disconnect or a distance perhaps. If you're frustrated, if you're anxious, if life isn't what you want it to be, if you just find yourself grumpy, what's your relationship with Jesus like today? Because in Him you will find contentment. Maybe you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe Christianity is that stuff for those wackos over there. Hey, maybe that's also why contentment is so elusive for you. Because you don't know the source of contentment. The reality is, if you know Christ Jesus, then you ought to know He's got you covered. I know this looking back on my life. I know this from where I sit right now, and I know this from all the years. I know this from times in my life where Cheryl and I struggled so much early on, and I was a youth minister at the time, so much that we were trying to decide which bills we could pay because we just were not making ends meet. And it scared me to death. Here I am, out on my own as a young man, mid-twenties, and and I'm supposed to now be taking care of my wife and my newborn son, Corey, and how am I supposed to do this when I'm having to decide between the electric bill and the gas bill for this month? I actually played that game. And I was not content. But now, when I look back on those days, you know what I remember? How Jesus stepped us through every single thing. How He provided in ways, and I can tell you stories that would blow your mind. Things that He did. Ways He provided when there was no way on earth I could be provided for or my family was going to be okay. And I look back and I see that all the way up to present day and I just marvel. Because frankly, my friends, I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to money. When it comes to financial things, that's just not my strong suit. I've confessed that before. I do my best. But man, I, I have seen Jesus work in ways I just don't understand. I don't know why He did it, how He did it, how He made it work. But He did. And now I can tell you all along, it really was Him. He had me covered. The key verse that I want you to hone in on here that I believe holds a powerful equation is verse 6. And it is an equation for the acquisition of greatest gain. 
Verse 6 again, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In other words, godliness plus contentment equals greatest gain. It adds up. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. How does that work? Let me break it down for you. What is godliness? Godliness is the person of Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 16 of chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Meaning He is what godliness looks like, but He is also how godliness gets into you. How you become, how I become godly. Godly is simply to look like God. Eve wanted to look like God. The secret was not in the apple or the fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. The secret was not in the fruit. The secret was not in becoming more of herself, more spiritual, more godly. You want to be like God, Satan said? Disobey Him. The secret to godliness is not amassing righteousness around yourself. It is not scripture memorization, although the Bible is a great and powerful tool. It is not my ability to pray in eloquent words, although prayer is vital to our lives. No, godliness depends on one thing and one thing alone, and that is Christ in you. You will not make yourself godly. But Christ in you is the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 We talked about midweek. It's called the treasure in earthen vessels. 2 Corinthians 4.7 Remember, Paul said we have this treasure in earthen vessels, meaning that we are clay pots. Broken, cracked, messed up. We are just empty pots. But we have a treasure in us. Christ in us. The mystery of godliness, how a human being can be godly, is because Jesus has now entered in you. He's he's taken up residence. He abides. And so the person of Christ is godliness. The teachers in Ephesus didn't understand that. They missed it completely. They supposed that godliness was a means of gain. They didn't realize the only gain that godliness refers to is gaining Christ. They didn't have Christ, so it was all counterfeit money. Godliness is the person of Christ. Add to that then contentment, and this is, this is huge. Add contentment. What is contentment? It's the peace of Christ. But not, not some esoteric spiritual peace. You know, in churches, one of the traditions in more liturgical churches is in the, in the passing out of communion to pass out the bread and say, peace of Christ, the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ. And you take it and, and man, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to belittle the practice because I think it can be very profound. But I think we miss it when we take that cracker, put it in our mouths and go, oh yes, I feel the peace. I got the peace. It's the peace and love. It's peace. It's groovy peace. It's not some spiritualized thing. When I tell you that contentment is the peace of Christ, I am talking about the peace of Christ. The contentedness of Jesus. Was Jesus content? Was He a man at peace? 
Paul says in almost every single one of his letters, grace and peace to you in Christ Jesus. Why? Because grace and peace are displayed in Christ Jesus, displayed throughout his ministry life. You want a picture of peace? Look at Jesus. Jesus was homeless, at least during his entire ministry, when he finally moved out on his own. A homeless man. He said in Matthew 8.20, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Where are you going to sleep tonight, Jesus? I was thinking about under over that over there under that olive tree. Might be a nice spot. The only place he ever had to lay his head was when someone opened the door of their home and said, Hey, come stay here. Hey, come rest here. Hey, we'll provide for you here. Jesus had a group of women following him who basically were his support. A group of well-off women who decided that their well-offness was best spent on this homeless rabbi. And they followed him around and took care of him. Listen, he was the God who had everything who became the man who had nothing. And was completely content. That's what I'm talking about when I say contentment. Godliness, the person of Christ, plus contentment, the peace of Christ. Listen to these descriptions of this peaceful, contented man. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. How's he going to do that? How's he going to bring forth justice? Well, he's going to get a big army. And then he's going to start marching from nation to nation, conquering everywhere. No. No. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It's not a loudmouth. It's not a blowhard. Jesus would not have been on Twitter. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, says this about him. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and riding on a tank. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In Jesus we see the persona of perfect peace. I have found, and try this, I have found in my life when I get uptight, when I get tense, when I get worried or anxious, that if I will just start reading one of the Gospels, the anxiety goes down. If I just start looking at Jesus and how He dealt with the conflict and the difficulties and the hardships that were thrown at Him in His life, I just it's just relaxing to me. My favorite place to be over the years of teaching here at the bridge has been in the Gospels because every time we get to a Gospel, it's interesting, my entire life just goes... <sighs> as we think about the peace that is in Jesus. Unshakable Composure. Well, wait a minute. What about when he lost it in the temple? <laughs> we talked about that just this last Thursday, Friday night at Connect. 
how he both began and ended his public ministry. John chapter 2, he began, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke show this at the end. I believe it happened both times. He cleaned out house, cleaned the temple, making a whip, a scourge to, to whip and snap and crack. The Bible says he overturned tables, he dumped out pots of money, he drove out the money changers. I mean, that's, that's tough. But it wasn't wild, out of control stuff. It was of a Savior who was absolutely content and knew what his role was. And even in his anger was holy and completely righteous. He had unshakable composure. And listen, that's what he offers you. And it's what he offers me. That's the kind of contentment we're talking about. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Peace, listen, peace I leave with you. John fourteen twenty seven. And then, I'd never heard it this way before. My peace I give to you. There is no peace like that. There is no composure like the composure and peace of Jesus Christ. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Contentment is the peace of Christ. And He says, my peace that you see in me, that you know is about me, that is shown in everything that I do, that's the peace I'm offering you. That I will give to you. That you can be as peaceful and as contented as Jesus Himself. And so work the equation, my friends. Godliness, that is the person of Christ in me, with contentment, that is the peace of Christ in me, yields great gain. And what's the great gain? The presence of Christ in me. The presence of Christ. He is the reward. He is the great gain. It's not all of a sudden that if I, if I pursue godliness, Christ in me, and I, I add that to contentment, now I have the peace of Christ, that He's going to give me something. I'm going to, I'm going to watch my stocks go through the roof. No. It's Him. What you discover at the end of a life pursuing godliness and living with Christ-like contentment, what you discover is the reward is Jesus. And you find out that all along, that was your joy. All along, He is and was the point. Behold, I'm coming so quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what He's done. My reward is with me. Why, Lord? Because I am the reward. Genesis chapter 15 is what God said to Abram. Hey, Abram, do not fear. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. It's me. It's a relationship with me. That's the whole thing. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. He's the whole thing. He is godliness. He is contentment. And when you receive both from Him, you receive the greatest gain, and that is Jesus Himself. 
And I finally understood that this is not a condemnation here by Paul to Timothy of worldly wealth. It's an invitation to eternal wealth. To eternal gain. And that gain is Jesus. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, It was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is godliness, Christ is contentment, and Jesus Christ is our greatest gain. So that, 1 Timothy 6.19, we may take hold of that which is life indeed. Father, You are life indeed. Jesus, You said I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then You went on to describe how You would abide in us. Oh, how marvelous is the life of Christ in us. And Lord, the godliness that just happens, that we pursue that just by pursuing You, Lord Jesus. And then the contentment that comes over us The stress, the strain, the worry, the fear, the doubts, the anxiety. Lord Jesus, it goes away when You are present. It goes away when You are the focus. My prayer for us this morning is that we will pursue godliness. That we will receive the contentment of Christ. And in so doing, we will know the greatest gain that any person can ever know in this life. And that is You, Lord Jesus. Father, some this morning are really struggling financially. I pray for them. I pray for Your provision. But more than Your provision, I pray for Your presence. I ask, Lord, that today as we leave this place, that every one of us go with a greater sense of Your presence in our lives than we may have had before. And may that, Your presence, be first our provision. And then secondly, Lord, provide. You said food and and clothing. You said the Gentiles long for these things. How much more will your Heavenly Father take care of these things? And so, Father, would you, for all who believe, give us that sense of contented peace because of your presence with us today. And Lord, for the person not believing... It may be the Christian not believing. But for the person not believing this morning, Father, I pray that realization will come. Revelation, Father, will come this morning. That it is only in Jesus that we find the gain that we so desire. Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Draw us to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please come. Let's stand and sing together.